three unattended children burned to death in a washington, d c. suburb a little while ago when their mother was an, uh, on an errand next door. They were, they were Joseph and Jason, three-year-old twins, and their 18-month-old brother, Philip. And sobbed the mother, why did this have to happen to me? I was gone only a few minutes. There is no God. If there were, he wouldn't have let this happen. It wasn't my fault. It was God's fault. When a telephone pole fell on his car during a storm, Rodney Bowman of Florin, Pennsylvania, suffered a broken back. He sued the Columbia Telephone Company for $10,830 in damages. In defense, the company argued that the incident was an act of God, a charge heard in court since 1581. And it's amazing, you'll see in some insurance policies that uh, where the exclusions, and one of the exclusions are acts of God. In fact, um, in one of my churches, I used some software designed by an Adventist pastor for keeping membership records, and he had the usual exclusions, and in those exclusions he had not liable for acts of God. What intrigued me was acts of Satan were not included at all. <laughs> so I could sue him for acts of Satan, but I couldn't sue him for acts of, acts of God. A child wrote to dear Abby, my Sunday school teacher says that God is everywhere. Please put this letter in the paper and maybe he will see it. Dear God, why did you let my brother die? When he was hit by the car, my mother prayed to you to let him live, but you wouldn't. My little brother was only two years old and he couldn't have sinned so badly that you had to punish him that way. Everyone says you are good and can do anything you want to do. You could have saved my little brother, but you let him die. You broke my mother's heart. How can I love you? It's all your fault, God. Susan Smith, who pushed her two sons into a lake to drown, then blamed a black car jacket for the deed, wrote in her, her official confession, and I quote, I dropped to the lowest point when I allowed my children to go down that ramp into the water without me. I took off running and screaming, oh God, oh God, oh God, no, what have I done? Why did you let this happen? It's not my fault, Susan Smith screamed. It's God's fault. And we live in a world where that refrain constantly happens over and over again. And that's why in this latter part of the series, we're talking about shifting from the thermometer mode, where the environment sets your temperature, to the thermostat mode, where you take control of your life and the environment. And we're going to look at a tool tonight that will help you be a thermostat rather than a thermometer. The title of my message today is Have Your Cake and Eat It Too. It's kind of a takeoff on the phrase, you can't have your cake and eat it too. But so many people want to. They want to do whatever they want to do with no consequences at all. And that's not how life is. I don't want any bad consequences. And the tool we're going to look at tonight, I got from Scott Peck and his four tools that he has for discipline of life. But I like this one in particular, delay of gratification. We're into self-gratification, not delay of gratification. Why are fast food restaurants so popular? We don't have time to sit down in a restaurant and, and order the food. We just go to the drive-up window and order the food. That's how quick, uh, how quick we are. If we want coffee, we don't want to grind it and wait for it to percolate. So there's what? 
instant coffee. Just put your spoon in and in the water and away you go and you've got, and you've got your coffee. I've even read of churches. If you get tired of sitting in a church service, there are drive-through churches. We drive up to the window, the pastor offers a prayer, and you're on your way. There's an offering plate there too, and he hopes you'll leave an offering as you, as you depart uh, the church. Um, some of the advertising that I get as pastors is I can get a called an instant church office. I can have software that has every conceivable letter that I might want to write. If you're sad, there's a letter. If you're happy, there's a letter. If you have a baby, there's a... So I don't have to think. I just click it off on my computer, just add your name and send it off, and I don't even know what I've, I've written because it's all there, instant gratification to save, to save time. You don't want to boil potatoes? You can actually get instant potatoes, right? Powdered potato, just pour it in and away, away you move. What a world we're in. And perhaps the latest example of a person into instant gratification happened in our area last year, Jessica Hall. I don't know how many of you remember Jessica Hall. It was summertime. She was driving up I-95 in Virginia, just ready to cross the line into Maryland. And there was a big, long traffic jam. And there was this car that cut in front of her a couple of times in the traffic jam. It's amazing how when you're practically stuck, some people think they can still get ahead. And, and that's so annoying. Well, she got annoyed, so she pulled her car over into the emergency lane, rolled down her window, and threw a cup of McDonald's ice water and drink through the window of the other car, which was open because it was a hot day, onto the people on the other side. Well, they called the police on their cell phone. The police caught up with her. She was arrested and uh, condemned, wasn't convicted to be two years in prison. She became known as the Mac Missile Lady <laughs> because um, while it hadn't hurt anyone and injured anyone, it could have been a deadly weapon. And in February 21 of this year, the judge commuted her sentence and gave her five years probation, but she had already spent seven weeks in prison with her children having no, no mother at all. There's a lady who was very much the thermometer, letting the environment decide and not delaying her gratification and, and her rage. Adam and Eve could choose from thousands, maybe millions of trees in the Garden of Eden, but they had to have what? That's that one tree that they couldn't eat from. They couldn't delay their gratification, and they wanted that tree, and we're in the a mess that we're in today. God comes to Abraham. says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son in your old age. Okay, God, I trust you. The years go by. Five, eight, ten years go by. Sarah comes. It doesn't seem like God's going to come through on his promise. Let's help God out. And you know the story. He has sex with Hagar. They produce a baby and Ishmael. And, and Abraham says to God, would you bless Ishmael? And God says, I will. And because of Abraham's request and God's blessing, we have the Israeli-Arab conflict today. Because all the Arabs are descended through Ishmael, and all the Jews are descended through Isaac. Because one man couldn't delay his gratification and wait until God was going to fulfill his promise. Abraham wanted his cake and eat it too. And that phrase actually originated in the 16th century in England for people who wanted to have their cake and eat it too, when, of course, we know that is not the case. King David, he's walking on the roof of his palace, happens to look over the edge. 
Oh, there's a beautiful woman taking a bath. Take a bath, you're usually naked. So, you know, he's looking and he says, wow, she's, she's pretty, pretty gorgeous. I want her. He's not into delay of gratification. He's, he's the king. So he sends off his servants, you know, brings her in. And, you know, the Bible says just one night was enough to, to get her pregnant. And when she tells him that she's pregnant, what does he do? He sets up a scene for Uriah to come home and sleep with his wife. So everyone would think it was his son. But Uriah is so dedicated to David and the war. He says, I can't come, go home and have pleasure with my wife when all my fellow soldiers are out there. I'm going to sleep on your doorstep. So David's scheme didn't work. So what does he do? He sends a note by him to Joab to put him in the front lines and then withdraw suddenly so he gets killed, which he does. And uh, David ends up marrying uh, Bathsheba. David was not into self-control. And how much that little thing gets us into trouble. In fact, the Bible tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Yes, we're saved by grace, but there's a lot of work we have to do once we're saved by grace with God's help to overcome those sinful passions, to take on the character of Christ, to learn self-control. Joseph is one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. And he learned the hard way of what happens when you don't delay gratification. Uh, he tells this dream. He says, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. He's telling his brothers and his fathers all about this. And his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now, did God tell him, tell your brothers this dream? No. This dream was for him, to encourage him and hint where he was going to go in his future. But you know, he was, what, maybe 17, 18, and he was pretty proud of this. And so he blurts the whole thing out to his brothers. And of course, they ah, that's great, Joseph. You're the, next to the youngest, and you're going to be our king. We welcome that, and that's just marvelous. Of course, that wasn't the case at all. And then God gives him another dream. And notice in this passage, it says they hated him, and he could sense the enmity. He could sense the feelings of hate. But he wasn't smart enough to pick up on that. And so he comes back to them later, and he says, listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time, the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. And you know the story. They eventually got rid of him. Uh, they sold him as a slave to Egypt. And here he ends up. Here he's, he's been the favorite of his father. Special clothes, all the attention that you can have in the family. Now he's a nobody. But he doesn't get discouraged because Joseph is one of the classic examples in the Bible of a thermostat. He didn't say, poor me. He didn't act like a victim. He didn't blame God. He said, I'm going to do the best that I can in this situation. And you remember the story? He works himself up until he becomes the head of all the slaves. His master gives him full authority throughout the, the house. And then he runs into a problem. 
You know, he's a young man. He has all the same sexual urges that all young men have. And the Bible says Joseph was well-built and handsome. Maybe he had, he had a, um, weights and he, you know, built up his muscles and so on. I don't know. But it says he was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his mother's wife, his, his master's wife, master's wife, took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Well, what an opportunity this was. Wow, now he's the head slave. He could bed the master's wife, and uh, he could have more power because he could intrigue through her, etc., in, in that family. And, uh, but we read that he refused. He was not into self-gratification. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in the house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Now, Joseph could have been a victim. He could have been the thermostat. He could have said, I'm a slave. I have no power in this house. If my master's wife wants this, I've got to do it. Because if I don't, I'm going to get in trouble. She's going to make up all kinds of stories to him, and he's going to believe his wife rather than me. I have no influence um, because I have no authority in this place. But no, he had principles in mind. He says, I'm going to be a thermostat regardless. And of course, he still got into trouble. Of course, if he'd bedded his master's wife when she got tired of him, she would have gone to her master anyway and said, look at this terrible slave, he forced me, and so on. So he was in a no-win situation anyway. So he stood firm for God and ended up, of course, in prison. And again, he didn't act as a victim. What did he do? He did his best for God until he became the chief of all the prisoners under the warden in the, in the prison. Whenever you feel discouraged... I would like to submit to you, go back and read the story of Joseph. I doubt that anyone in this room, and maybe there is, but I doubt anyone in this room has been through as low experiences as Joseph. Being a slave, being convicted unjustly, going to prison, and yet he stood true to form and he said, I'm not going to give in to my impulses, I'm not going to give in to my gratifications, he took charge of his, of his life. Yes, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You've got to learn what God wants you, wants you to have. And he's one of the great, great stories in Scripture. And of course, you know, eventually he becomes prime minister of Egypt and becomes second in command in the whole land. I've often wondered what Potiphar's wife thought when he became the prime minister. And if he'd been vindictive, he could have dealt with her and hauled her off to jail or done whatever he did. But he didn't because he honored God and stood firm with, with God. I used to be known as C.P. Newman, Chocolate Pudding Newman. I just love chocolate. I'd eat chocolate pudding for breakfast. I'd eat chocolate pudding for lunch. And chocolate pudding in England is different from chocolate pudding here, but I won't go into what the differences are. But anyway, I just love chocolate pudding, and so I was known as C.P. C. P. Newman. And I love sweets, and I get my sweet tooth from my father. In fact, my father loved chocolate so much that when he died, uh, my brother arranged a funeral because he lives in England and put him in the coffin with his Bible under his left hand and a bar of chocolate in his right hand, <laughs> right there in the, in the coffin. 
And the Adventist pastor was not amused. He had no, <laughs> he had no sense of humor about that. He thought that was sacred. I said, I said, Roy, that's great. And I went and took a picture of it, um, of him there in the coffin. So when the resurrection comes, you know, he's going to wake up. I don't know if the chocolate, the wrapper probably may still be there. He's going to look at this and wonder, why is this chocolate still, uh, still there? But I'm telling you this story because as I've got older, I've learned that I've got to control my appetite for chocolate and, and sweets. I, I've got to become more self-controlled. Um, I've got to give up candies and all of these things, even though I love them so much because they're affecting my health. And it's been very difficult. And uh, because I've loved it so much, and, and so, you know, and, I've, and my church loves me, uh, knows I love chocolate, and every now and then someone will give me a box of Godiva chocolate. <laughs> oh, and because I do a lot of object lessons, I took one of those one time, and I was doing this on, on self-gratification, and I pulled the box out, and I said, you know, self-gratification is, is just not eating these chocolates, you know, just maybe one one a week or one a month, they'll last a long time. Then I took one out and ate it right in front of the whole congregation. <laughs> and that just slayed them, you know, because they didn't have an opportunity uh, for that. Self-control. All of us in this room struggle with that at times, don't we? Whether it's eating, whether it's exercising, whether it's loving people, uh, whatever it might be, reading our Bible, having our devotional life, we, we weren't built to be controlled people because of sin in our lives. But if we're going to grow, if we're going to make love last a lifetime, we have to learn how to delay the, the sinful impulses, overcome the sinful impulses, so we can become like Jesus. Because Jesus knows all about self-gratification. Uh, John has baptized him. He's going off into the, the wilderness. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Anyone here? who has fasted totally for 40 days. If you do, you need to have medical supervision because you can be close to death if you haven't eaten for 40 days. And so the devil comes to him and he says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now what a reasonable request that is. He's hungry. He may be dying. He needs the food and he has the power to do it. But he doesn't. Why? Because part of the contract in coming to live on this earth is that he would use no power that you and I cannot use. And we can't turn stones into bread. So if he did, he would do something. Everything that Jesus did while he was on this earth, he did not do in his own power. Because some people say, what about all those miracles he did in raising Lazarus? But notice when he raised Lazarus, who did he pray to first? He prayed to his Father in heaven. Every miracle he did in the power of God, not in his own strength. Theologians have a special term, and they say that his divinity was quite essent. Because he was still God as a human being. 100% God, 100% human. But his divinity was quite essent all the time he was a human. That is, he never ever used his divinity for anything that he did. He got all his power from God in the same way that you and I can get that same, same power. Because who raised people from the dead after Jesus went back to heaven? Peter did. He raised Dorcas, you know, Paul, when um, the Eutychus fell out of the window and, and killed himself. So there was nothing that Jesus did that wasn't duplicated by the disciples later because they all relied on the same power. So when the devil came to him and said, what's more reasonable, 
even though Jesus could have excused himself, I'm hungry, I'm dying, almost dying, I'm not going to give in to that gratification. I'm going to be self-controlled. I'm going to rely upon God. And when he did that, the Bible says, angels came and ministered to him. Angels brought him food. Angels brought him water and took care of him. And his whole life, he lived a life dedicated to the delay of gratification, to the life of, of self-control. And he had many opportunities to live for himself. And towards the end of his life, when he's on trial, there were some dramatic experiences that were, were taking place. Remember in the garden, when the detachment of soldiers came to arrest him, Peter, good old, brave Peter, takes out his sword and he tries to defend him. And what does he do? He's not a very good aim. You know, he was trying to cut off the guy's head and he missed and just got his ear. And I guess that's pretty painful to have your ear sliced off, but not as bad as, as your head. And, and what does Jesus say? He says to Peter, he says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he'll at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? So Jesus said, I have the power. I can take care of the situation in a moment. But he says, I'm going to control myself. I'm going to delay the gratification of what should happen, because this is unfair, this is unjust, what is happening. But if I'm going to save humanity, I have to go through this unjustness and this unfairness. And then we find that um, Pilate sent him off to Herod. And we read there, it says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. He thought he was maybe John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And from what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform somewhat. Miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. I can imagine the devil was there. And have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't perform any miracles? Ellen White says that Herod brought in blind people and lame people and crippled people and all kinds of sick people and put them right in front of him and said, you, you, you've come to heal people. Heal these people. And the record says he didn't help them. Have you ever thought what must have been going on in Jesus' mind when he saw all these sick people here and he knew that he couldn't help them? He knew that he couldn't heal them. Why? Why do you think he couldn't heal them? Because the purpose of the healing was not primarily to heal them, but to what? Entertain. To entertain Herod and to prove who he was. And he'd already given many, many, many examples of who he was. And so if he had done that, he would have been doing something for himself as the primary motive not to help these people. And I can imagine there was intense pain going through his mind when he saw these sick people, these injured people, and he couldn't do anything about it to help them because this was not the right time and the right place. And he exercised self-control in that situation. And then... On the cross, the people, the chief priests, are calling out. It says, in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, saying, he saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. This must have been the greatest temptation of all. 
because here he is, and he had the power to come down, and they're saying, if you come down, we'll believe in you, right? So Jesus could have said, okay, I'm going to come down, and then you can believe in me. You know what would have happened if he had come down from the cross? Not one of those people would have, would have believed in him. They were saying it, but he had already demonstrated when the reports came back to the Sanhedrin that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Instead of praising God, what did they decide to do? They had to put, put him to death, and they wanted to kill Lazarus as well. Whether they did or not, the Bible doesn't say, but they planned to kill Lazarus as well. When you're against God, when you're not honest, when you don't want to follow God, there's no proof in the world, there's no evidence that you can give to anyone. And I talked about that the other night when I talked about the guy I was trying to convince as a God, and you know, I went through the rigmarole of when he said, I only believe in what I, what I can see. And I have learned that if a person doesn't want to believe, there's no logic, there's no apologetics, there's no arguments that you can use, and all you can do is, is love them. Yesterday, I spent two hours with Dale Ratzlaff. Some of you may know who he is. Some of you may not. He used to be an Adventist pastor, left the church, and he's written several books against Adventism, puts out a magazine called Proclamation. Um, 37,000 people are receiving that magazine. And he's told me he's helped dozens of pastors leave the Adventist church, and thousands of people leave the Adventist church. And his ministry is to get people out of the cult of Adventism into a life of joy and peace rather than the strictures of Adventism. And part of the reason I went down there, we were seminary students together back at Andrews. I worked with them in a business there in, in Benton Harbor. And we've been in some correspondence backwards and, uh, and forwards. And uh, January, he sent me a three-page letter with 21 questions of where I stood in certain areas. And I sent him a 10-page response back, single space. <laughs> So we had lunch together yesterday, and, and all I, you know, and it was like a machine gun, boom, 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 this question, this question, this question. And I, and I prayed to God, and I said, God, help me just to love this individual, because I knew there was no answer that I could give that would satisfy him. And so the only answer I could give was to love him and tell him, yes, I agree, we're saved only by grace. Whether you're a Baptist or a Catholic or an Adventist, it doesn't matter. We're all saved on the same basis by the grace of Jesus Christ. And as long as we can agree on that, nothing else really matters in the, in the realm of eternity. Because we all are going to have these different, uh, you know, different opinions. And he's, he was really hot against 1844 and the sanctuary and our use of prophecy. And I said, uh, do you believe in the evangelicals and their interpretation of prophecy in Israel and Jerusalem and what's going to happen there? He said, no. I said, well then why would you disagree with our interpretation of, of prophecy? If you don't agree with their interpretation, when you get into prophecy, that's a whole other ball game, and it's so easy to condemn other people for their interpretation. But anyway, we had a good time, and, uh, and I left after two hours. I don't think I changed anything there, but I hoped he, he could see that I, I cared and I loved him, and I wasn't there to condemn him, because unfortunately, many Adventists have condemned him. Some of the letters that he prints in his magazine from Advent. It's just, you know, they're so cruel. They're, they're so cutting. And all they do is make these kinds of people more sure that they're right when they get these kinds of, of issues. And tomorrow, at 1 o'clock, I'm going to be meeting with Mark Martin, um, the pastor of Calvary Chapel there. And please pray for me on that one. I've never met him before. I have no relationship, but Gary Vendon's the culprit on that one in, uh, 
in getting me to get together with, with him. So I just want to go and love him too and help him see that there are some Adventists who are loving, some Adventists who are grace-oriented. And that's what Jesus came to this world to show us that God is a God of love and a God of grace. And part of how we show the world that is to learn how to be self-controlled in our own lives and delay the, the gratification that is so easy for us to, to want. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, um, oh, we had had some problems before. I guess we messed up one of our slides here. All right, uh, let me read it from you. It's somewhere in the system, but I'd had real problem with my PowerPoint, and we're working it outside. That's why I came in late. Jesus in Matthew 6.33 said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. And he's talking about what? When you read it in his context, he's talking about your food, he's talking about your clothing, he's talking about your car, he's talking about your house. He's saying, if we delay our gratification, exercise self-control, and put God first in everything, he'll take care of all these other things. We don't have to worry about them. But we get so nervous sometimes. And that comes back again to what I said earlier, that we're all at different levels. Some of us are three months old spiritually, some six months, some a year, 18 months. And the goal of the Christian life is to keep growing spiritually so we become more mature and trust God more and, and more. And that's why it's so important to, to read Scripture, to meditate, to pray, to share with others, and to listen to what others have to say and not argue with them, but just love them right back all, all the way. Amen. A few years ago, a group of salesmen went to a regional sales convention in Chicago. And they'd promised their wives they'd be back in time for dinner on Friday. So they were rushing to the airport, traffic jams had delayed them, and they were rushing through the airport to get to their gate. When they knocked over, there was a stall there. You know how airports have all these kinds of stalls. There was, a, there was a kind of a cart with a bunch of apples on it. There was a girl who was attending it. And they knocked into that cart and spilled all those apples all over the floor of the terminal. But they were late for their gate, and so they just rushed on to the gate. And as they got to the gate, one of the men felt a little twinge in his conscience. And he turned to them and he said, buddies, he said, I can't get on this flight with you. Call my wife when you get there. Tell her, I'll try and get the next flight. I've got to go back and, uh, and put right what we did back there. And so he, he went back to the, um, where the apples were still on the floor, discovered that the girl who was attending it was 16 years old and was blind. And there she was on her hands and knees groping around trying to find these apples, some of which people had stepped on, some which were bruised, some which were crushed, and tears were just streaming down her face because she didn't know how to deal with the situation. So he picked up all the apples, put them back in her cart, saw all the ones that were broken and bruised, took $40 out of his wallet, and said, here, I want to give you $40 to make up for the apples that you have, have lost. Are you okay? And she kind of nodded, and a, and a brave smile came from her face. And as he turned to go, she suddenly stopped said, Mister? And he turned back, and she said to him, Are you Jesus? Are you Jesus? Amen. And that just cut him to the heart. And he went on his flight with that ringing in his ears. And I read that story, and I thought, 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if in our lives, everyone we met, people would say the same thing to us. Are you Jesus? Are you Jesus? Are you Jesus? And I thought a lot of that in, in my own life when I'm tempted to complain or be critical to someone or get upset in a situation. I remember this story and I say, I want to be Jesus to those folk. And if we will be that way, then we will be the love of God in this world. We'll be the community of faith that God wants us to be. And it all starts with self-control, delaying of our gratifications, putting them upon Jesus Christ and saying, Jesus, you submitted to God in everything. I want to submit in the same way. I want to be your light, your salt in this world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that in Scripture you've given all the answers to all our life needs. Just give us the will to follow them. Give us the courage to practice them. Give us more and more the desire to meditate on you, to listen to you, to hear you, to follow your words. Because, Lord, this world is dying. There are so many unhappy people out there. And where are they going to find you except in your people and by the way that we love each other? Thank you, Lord, for hearing us tonight and already with everyone in this room, filling them with your spirit and your love. And I praise you in your name. Amen.